Alright, if you'll take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Hebrews. We return to the 6th chapter, we move ahead to the 11th verse, but we're going to read verses 9 to 12. So if you'll turn, please, to Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 9, join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Thank you, brother. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love that you've shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints. And do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give to us wisdom and understanding. We pray that you would open our eyes, enlighten us according to your truth. And cause us, God, to see the responsibility that you have placed before us to do all that's in our power to do. But God, help us understand that that responsibility is in no way abrogating your sovereignty. God, you have held us accountable for our actions and you will deal with us accordingly. But you have saved us because you chose to save us. You give us all that we need. Teach us, cause us to grow, help us to be faithful and diligent in everything, that Christ would be honored by how we live and by what we do. God, I pray that if there's anything that I say this day that's not accurate, that you would cause it to fall away from our minds. I pray that you would give clarity. I pray that you would give us the ability, Father, to see the the tension and to see the balance and to understand. And I pray, Father, for you to open eyes, open ears, open hearts, cause your word to be planted deep in us, Let it bear fruit according to righteousness, as we read in Mark this morning. Let us bear fruit 30, 60, 100-fold, God. Let us bear fruit that would transform this world, that Christ would be honored. We ask all of these things according to your glory and grace. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. In the interest of full disclosure... Let me say this plainly at the outset of a sermon on diligence. I am not qualified to share with you anything that God has given me. I wish that I were diligent in everything that I am called to be diligent in. And I feel the lack today perhaps more than any day I can remember in a long time. This is earnest stuff. And no matter how faithful we try to be, I promise you we all fail. But I also promise you that God's love is no less for us because of our failure. So bear that carefully. Amen? It's much easier to maintain something than to rebuild it. It's easier to do the little things to keep your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength in the full love of your God than to claw your way back from the edge of ruin. The church in Palestine, according to the writer of the book of Hebrews, is in many ways tottering on the edge of this abyss. They are not mature. He has rebuked them for that much and strongly. They are still babes. 
And they have neglected those spiritual disciplines and gifts which would have guarded them against the encroaching root of their spiritual laziness. Now, he has said the things that he has said because he is concerned for them. And now he is still, in the midst of this encouraging passage, pressing them to strive after diligence. Pressing them to strive after a mature mind which says, I'm going to keep pressing forward to lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me. I'm going to continue to press with everything that I have in me so that I know without question that at the end of the day today, I am more mature than I was when I got up this morning. That should always be our aim. And there is no excuse for any Christian to sit back on their laurels and say, I really don't care about these things. I'm really not interested in these things. I really don't want to know anymore. I'm happy where I am. If that's your mindset, let me tell you plainly, God is not pleased with it. If you're comfortable where you are and just want to stay like you are without any thought to growth, God is not pleased with that idea. God is not pleased with that approach. Because that approach itself is harmful to you. That approach itself is harmful to your growth. It's harmful to your maturity. It's harmful to your soul. You will not know the fullness of everything that God has for you. And you will not know the comfort that is promised to you in Christ if that is your approach to walking in the life of Jesus. So I want to think with you about these things this morning, and we're going to think about these things actually for several weeks, because as I was laying this out, it became very evident to me that we're not going to get through everything that needs to happen. So today, what we're going to do is we're just going to talk about what diligence actually is. We're going to deal with how God calls us to deal with our own diligence, to press after it, to understand some of the tensions that exist between human responsibility and divine sovereignty, And to help us kind of open up some things that may become hard for us to get our heads around. So, essentially, diligence defined as this. It is doing everything that is in your power to do. That's a really broad definition. But if you're going to be a person who is diligent, when something is given to you to do, you do it. You set yourself to do the things that God has placed in front of you. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10 says this, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it casually without any care or concern. No, that's not what it says. It says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. So there's a really interesting balance there. What the writer of Ecclesiastes, and that was Solomon, by the way, what Solomon tells us is this. If God has given you something to do today, you should do it today because you might be dead tomorrow and you can't do it then. It's fairly direct. It's fairly straightforward. And he says, whatever it is that you're called to do, give your whole self to it. Do it with all your might so that at the end of the day you can lay down and rest in peace knowing that you have given it all that you have. It's not a bad way to live, but it needs a little more definition. Because in the end, it's doing with all of your might that which is the better thing. And that's where most of us fall down. We give ourselves very encouragingly or very enthusiastically 
to the wrong things. <laughs> we, can, we, can, we can do all sorts of things that mean nothing. I might be the very best player of a game you've ever known. But at the end of the day, does it matter? I might be the very best player of a guitar that you've ever known. I promise you I'm not. But if I don't use it for the glory of God at the end of the day, does it matter? No. Whatever it is that we do, we have to understand that there are good things and there are better things. There are things that are best. And so if good is the enemy of best, then does it not stand to reason that better is also the enemy of best? How many hours do you have in a day? 24. That's if you're awake for all of them. How many hours do most of us actually have in a day that we can use? 16? 18? By reason of strength, 20? 21? 12? (laughs) Can you do everything that you need to do in half the time that you're given to live? Can you do everything that you need to do if you were given all the time that you're given to live? No. So you have to make some priorities. You have to make some adjustments. You have to make some decisions about how you're going to spend yourself and what you're not going to do. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon gives us some good perspective on how we are to deal with this question. Starting at verse 9, What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time, and also he has put eternity into their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all of his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which is has already been, and what is already and what is to be has already been, and God requires an account of what is past. So again, we have this idea that God will look at the time and the effort and the energy and the abilities and the talents and the opportunities and the things that He has given to us, and He will say, Okay, what did you do with what I gave you? Now, this is not just an Old Testament idea. Jesus himself taught us this in the parable of the talents. When the master went away on a trip and gave unto his servants talents, this one five, this one three, this one one. And the one who had been given five went out, worked hard, made five more, received the praise of the master. The one who had been given three went out, worked hard, earned three more, was given the praise of the master. The one who had been given one said, I'm kind of scared and I don't want to do anything. I don't want to take any chances. So I'm going to hide it in the ground. And when the master came back, he gave him back his one, said, here you go. I didn't really use it, but it's clean. It's nice. It's untouched. 
And the master said, you are wicked. You should have at least put it in the bank so I could have received back what was mine with interest. There's an accounting. There's a reckoning. There will be a day coming when God will say to you, I gave you this and this and this and this and this, and I want to know what you did with it. Not that he doesn't already know, but you're going to have to confess this. You're going to have to have that conversation. And for some of us, it might be a painful conversation. I already started off telling you that my own diligence is less than it should be. That my own earnestness in pursuing the things and in using the time that's been given to me and in making the most of the opportunities that God has entrusted to me is less than it should be. I'm honestly, at many circumstances of my life, not looking forward to that conversation. The only thing that keeps me sane in the thought of it is the knowledge that I bear no guilt that will cause me to fall under the wrath of God. That's been carried away in Christ. But that conversation might be just a little bit painful. It might be just a little bit unpleasant. Because the reality of it is, is that we have a responsibility to do what we do to the glory of God with everything that we have in us, in every moment of our lives, and unto everything that we put our hand to do. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians. He said, therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's our responsibility to do this because God has put eternity in our hearts. He has helped us understand that the things that are in front of us, they're passing. He's caused us to long and to to hunger for something more. This means that the time that you have here and the strength that you've been given now is not just for here and now. It's not even just for tomorrow. It's for eternity. You have been given the extraordinary, awesome privilege as being called as a child of God to do something which will resonate and bear fruit into eternity. How do you use that? How do you use that well? Well, I pray that you use it with diligence. I pray that you use it with a determination to set your hand to the plow with everything God has given you and to labor with all the strength that is in you to pursue and to fulfill what God himself has called you to do and to do it with a kingdom purpose and a kingdom mindset. To know that there is no task given to you under the sun which cannot be turned to the glory of God but that you still must be discerning and careful in how you choose to spend yourself because you have laid before you a plethora of opportunities and decisions. You have an entire kaleidoscope of every possible option and thing that you could do with the day that you've been given today. You have to use your time well. And you have to use your time with diligence and purpose if you're going to actually make a difference. We've prayed for our nation. We pray for our friends. We pray for our families. And then after we've prayed, we go out and we live like it doesn't matter. What kind of sense does that make? None at all. Our lives are the testimony of Christ to them. How we speak, how we live, how we act what we do, what we testify by the things that we choose to spend ourselves on. 
This is the testimony of God unto the people that we have prayed for. We're called to be diligent. Maybe to help put this in perspective, we ought to think about the antonym of diligence. What is the opposite of diligence? Sloth. Laziness. That's it exactly. Laziness is not a word that we necessarily like. I don't ever want anybody to look at my life and say, that man is just flat lazy. Out of all the things that you could say that I would take offense at, that tops the chart. You can call me anything you want. You can call me stupid. You can call me arrogant. You can call me wrong. That happens all the time. But don't call me lazy. I don't ever want to be considered lazy. But the scripture speaks to this question of diligence versus laziness quite profoundly and honestly quite painfully. Laziness keeps us, doing, keeps us from doing that which is best. Listen to how the, the, the writer of Proverbs, and I don't know if Solomon wrote this particular proverb or not, but listen to this proverb. 26.15 says, The lazy man buries his hand in the bowl, and it wearies him to bring it back to his mouth. What a picture. Too lazy to eat? Well, clearly I'm not that. <laughs> he buries his hand in the bowl. He's so determined, I want it. But I don't want it enough to take what I've been given. Don't we treat our time in the same way? I don't want to make use of what I've been given. I'd rather just sit here and play and sleep and do nothing. I'd rather just be pointless. That's laziness. And and this picture of a man who will not even bring it up, there's also this idea that he's too lazy to care for and thus fully enjoy what God has given to him. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 27 says, The lazy man does not roast what he took in hunting. But diligence is a man's precious possession. So a man who, who has hold of something that God has given him can't even be bothered to care for it, to prepare it, to to make sure that it is able to be fully enjoyed. Instead, he just kind of throws it all together. I I got this thing God gave me. I was allowed to kill a deer, and I I can't be bothered to roast it. I'm just going to eat it raw. What? Shameful. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a nice rare steak. That's a different issue. But the idea is that We're so wrapped up in our own ease that we will not make anything better by having been there. Ask yourself the question, is the world going to be a better place for you having walked on it? Do you leave it better than you found it? Are you striving after having an impact that will actually improve the lives of those who follow after you? Because here's the truth. The lives of those who follow after you will have an impact. They will be impacted by your life one way or the other. They will be impacted for good or they will be impacted for bad, but you are not capable of having no impact on the people who come after you. It cannot be. We need to be mindful of this truth. Laziness kills the heart by its own desires. Proverbs 21.25 says, The desire of the lazy man kills him. 
for his hands refuse to labor. In other words, these dreams that just rise up and, oh, I wish I could do that, and there's really nothing keeping you from doing it except you. That kills us. It literally kills our soul. It literally ruins us. And it causes us to be bitter and angry. And in the end, laziness ultimately destroys everything by slow degrees. Look at Proverbs 24. Proverbs chapter 24, starting at verse 30. I went by the field of the lazy man. And by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. Now we're going to come back to this passage in a few weeks when we consider the question of diligence and understanding. But there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered well. I looked on it and received instruction. And here's the instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And so shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. So here's the reality of it. You will either apply diligence or you will experience decay. There are no other options. Stasis is not possible. Nothing remains exactly as it is. Do you understand that principle in your life? Do you understand that principle in the things that you choose to spend yourself on? You are either making the world better or you are making the world worse. It's not remaining static. It can't. It is not in the nature of the world to remain static. It's not possible. It's not possible that things would just stay as they are. So this is the picture of diligence. And this is what we want to at least address for ourselves and ask the question, not only am I being diligent, but are we all being diligent together? As the body collective and as the component individuals that make up the body Are we being diligent? Look back at Hebrews 6. I want you to understand that this is really the pressure that's being placed on us by the Scripture. Hebrews chapter 6, listen to what the writer says. Verse 11, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope and to the end. Every single one of you. It's our desire that each of you show the same diligence. In other words, there is a responsibility to be concerned for how diligently every person in the body lives their lives. There's a responsibility for us to not only have concern for our own sake, but for the sake of those who are among us in the body. It's because if we don't all make it together, then we have all failed. Does that make sense to you? If we're a body, then we are a body. We have part one with another. And there's no way that you can differentiate and set yourself to where you don't either care about somebody else or you're not willing to pour yourself into them or you're just going to say, ah, it doesn't really matter. There is no way that you can be a part of a body and not be a part of a body. It just doesn't happen. 
And if you think about how your body functions, that will make perfect sense to you. We worked very hard yesterday cutting firewood, and my whole body knows it today. (laughs) I'm sore in places I didn't know I had. And that's okay. That's as it should be. My whole body is collectively aware that it's one thing. Are you collectively aware that the body of Christ is one? Are you collectively aware that every single component in the body matters? This is why I am so adamant all the time encouraging the body to be present when the body is gathered. To come be a part of theological discussion fellowships. To come be a part of midweek Bible study. If you are free and can make it at all, come be a part. Come be a part of the fellowship dinners. Come be a part of the meetings. Come be a part of anything that you can possibly be at. Because it binds us together as the body. It helps us be of one mind and one heart and one purpose and one everything. Because whether you recognize it or not, this is important. Whether you recognize it or not, it is the truth. According to the mind of God, according to the word of God, according to the will of God, we are one body. Now you can choose to try and distance yourself from the body, and it will hurt you. But you also must recognize the fact that it hurts the body. We are a body. And we all need each other as fully as we can possibly partake in the body. It matters how others in the body of Christ are faring. We are accountable unto one another, but we are also accountable for one another. I am never going to be free just as a member of the body, never mind the added responsibility that's mine as the pastor, I will never be free to look at somebody in the body who is struggling or hurting or having some sort of an issue and go, eh, not my problem. He made this mess. He can have it. I'm never free to do that. I can try, but I will bear the cost because we are one body. I'm never free to just say, I don't really care. I'm I'm done. I'm checking out. I can do it, But we all bear the cost because we are one body. We were working with chainsaws all day yesterday. And believe it or not, we tried to be very, very careful because every person who was there had a body that was all one. We wanted everybody to leave with a body that was all one. No amputated parts, no severed pieces. Yay us, we managed it. It matters. It sounds silly to put it into that context, but that's exactly what we have to strive for as the body of Christ. Look at how Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6, starting at verse 1, Paul says this. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass... You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Listen to the instruction. 
bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, a couple of things I want to say about this before I move on. If you have a burden, you do not have the right to keep it to yourself. You do not have the right to say, ah, no, 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 that's mine. You don't have to, you don't have to help. I'm not going to let you help. I'm going to isolate myself from you, and I'm going to isolate you from me. You don't have the right to do that because we are a body. You think about how a body is put together. God created your body that way. If I were to smash my thumb with a hammer, it's going to communicate its displeasure with the rest of my body. The nerves bind us together. Whether you acknowledge the nerves exist or not, when you get smashed with a hammer, guess what? Every nerve in your body says, hey, hammer, ouch. Amen? You can pretend that you're not an important part of the body, but you are. Listen, what we're dealing with is spiritual reality. And you can set yourself against that spiritual reality if you like, but you are not the only one who bears the consequences of it. The writer of Hebrews says, we desire that you all show the same diligence. So our responsibility as the body of Christ is to be mindful of how each one of us is walking in accordance to truth. It binds us together. It helps us grow. It helps us be faithful to the calling that's been placed in front of us. We have a responsibility one unto another. Bear one another's burdens. Reading on. If anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. So there's the balance. We are called to bear each other's burdens, and we're called to bear our own load. And both of those things exist very comfortably in the same passage because they both exist in real life. What's the difference between bearing your own load and bearing one another's burdens? Well, the load is that part which is yours to do. It means that you're going to step up and you're going to fulfill your obligations to the people and the commitments that you've made in your life, among which is the body of Christ. And where extraordinary circumstances come and extra burdens arise, we're going to step alongside each other and share them. And in that, we are fulfilling both our own responsibility and our accountability one unto another and one for another. We have to keep this in mind. Because in the end, it's driven by our love for one another. But it's also driven by the understanding that we are stronger and better together than we will ever be apart. If you don't get this... We need to have a private conversation so I can rebuke you privately and not embarrass you. <laughs> because this truth drives everything that we do. You need the body, and the body needs you. You are better in the body, and the body is better for you having been a part of it. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. We come to church to be fed. Do we come to church so that we feel better when we leave? Is that why we're here? I hope not. I mean, I hope you feel better when you leave. I hope that God meets you here and changes your heart. But listen to what the Scripture says. Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 24. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That was verse 23. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. What does the writer of Hebrews say is the primary reason for our gathering together consistently, faithfully, regularly? Because I need you to pour into me. And I need to pour into you. I come to church to pour into you. And you should come to church in order to pour into the body. Consider one another. It's bigger than you are. It is something that God has given you to invest your life in. To invest yourself in. To invest your gifts in. God does not give you anything so that you can keep it selfishly for yourself. There are two bodies of water in the land of Israel. One is called the Sea of Galilee and the other is called the Dead Sea. If you were to turn in your Bibles to the back and open up the Gospel of Maps, you would see that there is something unique about the Dead Sea. It has no outlet. No water escapes the Dead Sea. It takes and takes and takes. Every drop of water that falls in the land of Palestine eventually ends up in the Dead Sea. You would think, boy, that's the place to be. The truth is, it's called the Dead Sea for a reason. And beloved, when you approach the life of Christ and say, gimme, 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 and I'm not going to put anything back out, guess what you become? The Dead Sea. What Scripture calls us to do is to recognize that what gives us life is an outlet. What gives us life is given to us in order to impart to others. What gives us life is that which allows us to imitate Christ who gave Himself for the sake of those that He loved. And beloved, this is our calling as the body of Christ. And we're called to do it how? Diligently. We're called to be diligent together. Because we need each other for this. I've already told you I'm not the most diligent man in the world. I wish that I was better at this. So in doing that, guess what that is to you? That is an invitation to you to help me. That is an invitation to you to help hold me accountable. That's an invitation to you to come alongside me and say, Pastor, should you really be spending your time doing this? But I like it. It's so much fun. No. Should you really be spending yourself on things that do not matter? And the answer is, of course I shouldn't. What's sad about that whole dynamic is that often I will have more of a response towards holiness because I do not want to be embarrassed by you than I will have simply out of obedience to my Lord. And that is sin itself at the core. It just confesses that I love the praise of men more than I love God, and that's shameful. But let's acknowledge it as a motivation, and let's use wickedness, if you might, (laughs) for the sake of righteousness. Understand this. If you're honest with yourselves, I expect you probably would have to confess the same thing. 
at the end, what God calls us to do is to engage in the reality that we are better together as the body than we will ever be apart. And it is unselfishly motivated when we get this right, but it also serves our own best need at, at the same moment. God has so ordained things that you can do something for somebody else completely righteously and receive more benefit than you ever give and than you ever would have received had you not done it. So, enter into ministry, enter into full-hearted, whole-person, 100% with abandon, ministering unto the body of Christ, knowing that what God will give you in return is far more than you could ever give. Because he will make sure that he does. The writer of Hebrews says, I desire that we all diligently do this. And God has equipped us so that in the end, we receive more than we give. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 11. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now this passage right here, before we move on, this flies in the face of modern church tradition. Modern church tradition says the pastor exists to do the work of the church. He's an employee of the church. He is responsible to do the work. I'm responsible to make sure he does the work. That is completely ungodly. The scripture says that God has given pastors to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. My job is to make sure that you have what you need to do what God has put in front of the church to do as the work of the ministry. Now, if you are not equipped, if you are not prepared, if you are not taught, if you are not enabled, if you are not empowered by the things that are coming out of, out of the things that God gives me, at that point, you have a problem with me. But if I'm faithfully teaching you the truth of God's word and faithfully encouraging you to do what God tells you to do, I'm doing my part. I'm equipping you. You need to do it. You need to get up. You need to dust off your, 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 your rears. And you need to do what God has put in front of you to do. And we need to do that collectively, and we need to do that together, because in the end, we are all accountable for what we do as a body. Let's read on. Verse 13 says, Until we all come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I love that phrase. So that we should no longer be children. What was the argument that the writer of Hebrews had with the church of Palestine? That they were still children. That they were still babes. What does Paul tell us is the solution for that? It's not knowing more, actually. It's being faithful to do the things that God has given you. If you just do what you know, God will teach you more in the way. And that's always true. Any of you still ever have opportunity to drive a car without power steering? Let me ask you a rhetorical question. If you want to turn the vehicle without power steering, how do you do it easily? You make sure it's moving. 
If it's moving just a little bit, even just a tiny little bit, all of a sudden that wheel will turn. But you can sit there and stand up and down on that steering wheel and crank with all you have in you and feel like, I haven't moved the wheel at all. And maybe, depending on the size of the car, you haven't. Do you recognize the truth that your life is exactly the same? It's not that God can't turn you. It's that it's much easier on you if you're moving when he does it. You know why it's hard to turn a wheel that's not moving? Friction. What are you doing when you actually do? You're tearing up the flat, you're tearing up the tire where it's in contact with the ground. God will turn you. He'll move you. He'll point you in the direction he wants you to aim. But if you're not moving, if you're not obeying, if you're not engaging in the work in any way, as he moves you, more than likely it's going to hurt. It might even hurt a lot. We need to recognize this truth. We need to engage in the practice of obedience and and faithfulness in this account. Verse 15. Speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. I'm going to read that again. From whom the whole body, that's us, joined and knit together by what the preacher gives them, no, by what every joint supplies, that's you, according to the effective working by which every part What's the next phrase? Does its share. Causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say that every single person who's a part of the body is responsible to do the same thing. And that is a bad metric of diligence if that's how you're applying it to your life. You are not accountable to do the things that are on my plate. You understand that? You are accountable to do the things that are on your plate. You are accountable to do the things that God has put in front of you. You are accountable to do the things that God has equipped you to do for the sake of the body, by which every part does its share by which every part does its share. And what is the final result of every part doing its share? Verse 16 again. Which by every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. In other words, as the body functions as the body and every person diligently applies themselves to do their part, the body itself grows in love. Beloved, hear this. My diligence, your diligence, our diligence is everybody's concern. You have a responsibility unto the body to be as diligent as you can be with the things that are in front of you. But you also have a responsibility unto the body to help others be as diligent as they can be with the things that are in front of them. We are called to work together as the body of Christ. 
And whether you want to obey this or deny this doesn't change the reality that God has actually spiritually knit us together and none of us can escape that bond. You can run. You can flee. You can go away. And when you do, the body will have something that has been amputated from it. And we will be less than we were. So your choices have consequences in the lives of people that you tell me you love. Pay attention to this. Diligence has real consequences in everybody's life. So we're called to be diligent together, but we also need to recognize the truth that our diligence is by nature declarative. This is a powerful truth. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians 1, starting at verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the sight of God, our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word with much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Acacia who believe. For from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Everyone around you sees your diligence, or everyone around you sees your laziness. I love that, the, that Paul writes here that diligence breeds diligence. He says he prays for them without ceasing because he remembers them and the diligence that they show. It stirs up his own faithfulness when he sees theirs. And by the same token, if we're surrounded by laziness, we ourselves tend towards laziness. Because bad company corrupts good morals. Do you recognize the truth that if you are diligent, then it encourages others to be more diligent? It lights a fire. It strikes the spark. It it gives us that little bit of oomph that we sometimes need to get over the hump. Your diligence actually matters. Diligence is also public. The world saw their diligence and the churches themselves were encouraged to emulate the diligence of the church in Thessalonica. There's a public aspect to this. You can be diligent in your private life and think nobody notices, nobody sees. But you guys grew up in small towns, most of you. Does anybody ever not see everything? And as soon as they see it, they gossip it around every place and everybody knows it before you know it yourself. That's the nature of small towns. And while it's incredibly annoying, it's also incredibly powerful for us to remember as a witnessing tool. Your diligence 
matters. Pour yourself into the things of God and see and know that people are watching. And diligence honors the God that we serve. If He is as worthy as we say He is, should not our lives reflect that we truly believe this? Amen? If God is everything that we say He is, does His honor not deserve our diligence? Should we not live in such a manner that our lives testify that? On the flip side, does it not tell the lie in our words if we cannot be bothered to do any of the things that God commands us just because they're hard? If my measure for I'm going to do that is, oh, it's just exhausting. I can't. Do I believe it? I can give testimony that I believe it, but do I? No. I'm called to get up and do what God tells me to do. And if I believe that He's God and I believe that what He says is true, then how I respond to that tells you whether or not I actually believe that it's true. At the end of the day, I want to make the point that our diligence is a godly thing to do. It's something that God calls us to engage in because we're His. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 17 says, You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, His testimonies and His statutes which He has commanded you. Diligence says you will put yourself to do what God has told you to do. You're going to set yourself towards it with all of your heart and all of your mind, and you're going to do the very best that you are capable of doing. This is what God commanded the people of Israel all the way back at the covenant relationship that was being established in their time in the wilderness. And it translates into holiness. As you are diligent, as you are faithful, it translates in your life into holiness, and it breeds some things for you and in you that are worth noting. First of all, it breeds protection. Look at Ezra chapter 7. This is kind of an interesting point. Ezra chapter 7, get to Job, keep going back to the left a little bit. Ezra, then Nehemiah. So chapter 7 in in the book of Ezra, and we're just going to read a couple of verses here. Verses 12 um, and 13. I'm sorry, 21 to 23. I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently. Up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribed limit. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven... Let it be diligently done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Now this is a pagan king who is issuing this decree as the people of Israel have returned to their homeland and they are attempting to rebuild the temple. He has issued the decree that out of his own treasuries... The supplies that are needed to rebuild the temple shall be paid. And he makes this remarkable statement. 
Why should we suffer wrath for not helping the people of God do what he calls them to do? They're diligently setting themselves to obey and to fulfill what God requires. And the king charges his treasuries to diligently pay out so that he can avoid wrath. It's a remarkable thing to me to consider that as the people of God walk in holiness and diligently pursue obedience, that there is a shielding sort of influence over the land in which they dwell. You say, boy, that's quite a stretch. Not really. I just understand what the rest of Scripture says. Because remember what Solomon prayed when he dedicated the temple in 1 Corinthians. Or first, wow. <laughs> Not Corinthians. That wasn't Solomon. In 1 Chronicles. He said, If my people who are called by my name will turn from their sin, seek my face, then I will heal their land. That's abbreviated, a few things left out of it. But notice the relevant point here. The condition of the land in which we dwell is a direct correlation to the faithfulness of the people of God. So God promised us that if we'll turn from our sin, turn unto him, he'll heal our land. Well, what he's saying here is that he's already told this pagan king that if they'll help and let the people of God be diligent then the land will not suffer God's wrath. The land will be protected by our diligence. So we can ask ourselves this question. Has our land experienced a great deal of protection in its 200-odd years of life? Yes, it has. Has it experienced less protection these days than it used to? I would say yes, it has. What's changed? The church. The diligence of the people of God to give themselves to the things of God with their whole heart. See, if we're diligent, it translates into holiness. And as we translate that into holiness, then God translates that into protection for His people. And there is a shield poured out over the people amongst whom they live. Beloved, this is ours. This is our responsibility and this is our mess. We've done this. It's time for us to lay hold of the plow and put ourselves back into obedience so that God might heal this land. It also preserves us from the discipline that is ours as the children of God for being silly. Remember that the scripture promises us in Hebrews chapter 12 that God rebukes and chastens everyone that he receives as a son. Verse 12, verses 5 and chapter 12, verses 5 and 6 says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. Verse 6, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son that he receives. So if we're diligent, we're going to be preserved not only nationally from the things that are going against us, but we'll also be preserved personally and corporately, from the foolishness that is going to lead us to discipline. That's not to say that you're not going to have discipline, because God does accept you as sons and daughters. You are his children. He's going to correct you. But if I have to have five things that God disciplines me for, and by my foolishness I make that number 23, which one's better? Five or 23? Which one do you want to be corrected for? Five. <laughs> I'll take the five. I'll take the five with joy, and I'll thank you for them, God, because they give testimony that I'm yours. 
But when I'm disciplined for something that I know I did because I'm foolish and rebellious, I don't like that. It hurts doubly. It hurts because it's discipline, and it hurts because my own stupidity offends me. I want to avoid those things. I want to experience the fullness of what God calls me to do. The reality is, is that our diligence also protects us from drift and thus from temptation. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. In other words, what you allow to influence your heart, what you allow to let your heart dwell on and contemplate and long for and lust after and desire above all things, those things become the things which actually drive your life. So keep your heart with all diligence. Pay attention to what you pour into it. Pay attention to what you give yourself to. Pay attention to what you focus your time and attention and life on. Because out of those things comes the direction of your entire life. Pay attention to these things. Let these things be honoring unto God. Because here's something that's strange. Temptation itself is naturally very diligent. Proverbs 7, you guys all know the Proverbs 7 woman. Well, she says right in the middle of Proverbs 7, I came out to meet you diligently to seek your face, and I have found you. You know all temptation seeks you out that way? All temptation seeks you out diligently. So if you're going to experience the fullness of God's mercy in your life, you need to apply yourself to diligence to pursue Him. To be faithful in the parts that are yours. And if you do, you'll be rewarded by God. He'll entrust you with greater authority. Proverbs 10.4 says, He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent is made rich. He sets them to rule. You remember the proverb of the talents. Not only were they rewarded by the master, they were given great rewards. Proverbs 12.24 also says, The hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be, forced, will be put to forced labor. But perhaps most importantly of all, a diligent life in the people of God brings delight and joy to the heart of the Father. It imitates Him. It imitates His own nature. And God is always diligent. And He loves it when His children act in a manner which is consistent with His own person. Deuteronomy 28.1 says, Now it shall come to pass that if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all of His commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. There's His promise. His promise says that he will reward those who honor him with their heart's devotion, allegiance, and diligence. Beloved, is there anything more blessed than the smile of the Father? You have it by right as his child. But you can also know that your life brings it into a little clearer focus by the diligence with which you pursue him. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day. And I pray that you would help us understand how you call us to live and that you would equip us to walk with diligence and obedience in all the days of our lives. And I pray, Father, that as we do so, that your name would be honored by both among us and by us. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.